podcast one production. G'day, I'm Tim Harcourt and welcome to the Airport Economist. In this special mini-series, we're sticking to home soil to discover some of the greatest export success stories taking place right here in Australia. Exporting can expose your business to a wealth of opportunities, but as we'll soon find out, there are some tricks and tips to getting it right. So in each of these six episodes, I'll speak to small businesses right across the country to find out how they've achieved their success overseas and what you can do to ensure your own. In 1988, it was the bicentenary year, so I decided to take a trip around Australia. I ended up in the top end in Darwin and Kakadu. I wanted to see Kakadu because of Crocodile Dundee. But I was really, really keen to see Ayers Rock or Uluru in Central Australia with my own eyes. Well, I got down to the centre by coach, and one thing I noticed about Alice Springs and Uluru that I was the only Aussie in the place. There were tourists from Sweden and Germany and Britain and Japan, all in the youth hostels, and they were basically all making a beeline for the rock with the sole purpose of doing the climb, getting the photo and the certificate, and maybe a T-shirt, and then moving on to their next destination. Well, I've returned to the Red Centre almost every 10 years since, and I've started to notice a bit of a change. The international tourists are still there, and still mainly from those destinations, but there's been a huge growth in Indigenous enterprises in tourism and hospitality. In fact, on my last trip to Uluru, I sat down with Sammy Wilson, a traditional owner of Uluru, who runs Indigenous cultural tours. It struck me in the rush to climb the rock that many tourists, both local and international, were missing out on the 50,000 years of history surrounding the rock and the local area. Well, Sammy works with his business partner, Brett Graham, from SEAT, Outback Australia. Welcome to the show, Brett. Hey, good day, Tim. How are you going? Now, what does SEAT stand for? Explain that to me. Uh, SEAT's an acronym, and we use it as a play on words. Um, it stands for spirit, emotion, intellect, and task. And uh, they're the four elements that um, we strive to put equally into every single thing we do. So these are sort of bespoke tours, very specialised, tailored tours, rather than those big jump on the AAT bus sort of production line type things. Yeah, that's correct. So in some of our cases, we do have a a few sort of, if you want to call them run-of-the-mill tours, but no two of our tours ever run the same. Every day, you've got a different guide, you've got different environmental factors, you've got a different mix of people, and generally, people are choosing our product because they want to be informed. They don't want to be just sort of taken here, do this, you know, get off, get on, take photo, do this. They want to be able to ask questions. They want to be able to get a personal response. They want to be able to touch, feel, um, and be part of the Outback experience. And that's exactly what we provide. And where do you take your tours? Because it's not just Uluru, isn't it? It's the APY lands and the desert and and so on. Can you tell us a bit about the country you, you show people? Look, Uluru Katajuta National Park is the draw card. That's known as the location around the world, and uh, essentially everyone picks that as the destination. It's then convincing or showing customers that there is 
so much more to do other than um, just Uluru. So we do tours to Kings Canyon, which is you know 300 kilometres from um, Uluru. We tour up to Alice Springs, West McDonnell Ranges, and then down across the border into South Australia, into the uh, APY lands for um, a couple of Indigenous tours we run down there with the local communities. And then out the back of Uluru onto Aboriginal lands. Um, so it's taken a while to put all this together. But uh, there's sort of no boundaries to where we go. And we can plug all of these elements together and, and completely customise a tour for what the client wants within the time frame. And what's your mix of domestic and international tourists that take your tours? Yeah, look, it, it does vary from year to year and it's subject to a whole heap of financial indicators. But as a general rule, um, we're normally about 70% international, 30% domestic. And where do the international tourists come from? What countries and what sort of demographic? Are they baby boomers or millennials or a bit of both? Yeah, look, a little bit of everything. We more tend to get um, sort of the more mature customer because they're, they're picking our product for the reasons of that they want a private charter or they want something a bit more exclusive. So they're a little bit more uh, prepared to, you know, spend a little bit more money to get the experience. Um, America is, is a huge uh, market for us, North America, followed by um, uh, England is uh, probably, you know, running really close in terms of numbers. And then uh, Europe, um, Germany and Italy are very, very strong markets, um, followed by sort of the other European companies. Spain's a big market. And a new emerging market for us is um, Latin America, so uh, Chile, Brazil and Argentina. Now you deal with a lot of cultures and, and languages with the various international tourists mm. you meet. Do they have very different expectations in what they expect from you? You know, do they have do they look for different things depending on what country they come from and does that create challenges for you? Yeah, that does create some challenges, especially when you've got... Um, four different languages on a sort of a, a mixed tour on a bus um, and you've got to try and <laughs> cater for <laughs> four different countries at once. Yeah, there is a significant difference between different countries' perceptions and expectations of what they're going to get in Uluru and that just comes down to how much we educate the agents and the clients before they arrive. So some countries um, are a bit more... Um, I suppose, a bit more sort of demanding in terms of that they want to see this and they want to do that and, you know, it's it's a bit more structured where um, some of the other countries, especially like the European countries, are a little bit more relaxed about it where they'll um, say, yep, we're going to go on this tour and they're sort of a bit more flexible and happy to go along with what happens on the day, which um, actually equates to a better tour. They go with the flow. They go with the flow and there's no pressure and therefore they actually achieve more by not having any expectations. And how do you market yourself, you know, to overseas tourists compared to Australia? Is there a way you do it? Do you do it through agents? Do you do it through the, you know, the Central Australia body? How does it work? Yeah, so, um, I mean, tourism's... Um, uh, one thing I will say is, you know, through Tourism Australia, the structure um, of um, how do you get that overseas client um, who knows nothing about Australia and nothing about Uluru, there's actually quite a, a good process there. So there's lots of agents. We have inbound tour operators in Australia. We have outbound tour operators um, in each country. Then you have your agents, which will filter into those. So then the customer will walk into a travel agency, for example, say, oh, I want to go to Uluru, tell me about it. And it's about, so you've got to educate down the line. 
having said that, it's quite interesting in the last 10 years how that's changed because a lot of customers are now online. So they're, um, they can either book direct. But having said that, we actually find most of our customers will do their research online. They'll check out Australia. They'll go, I want to go here, here and here. They'll do all the homework. They'll then walk into a travel agent with all the information and say, this is what I want to do. What can you tell? So there's still that personal connection that needs to happen to actually get the tour secure. Then that agent will forward that information on to um, the inbound uh, or their outbound tour, our inbound, and then it'll come direct to us. So how do we educate them? We have to travel the world. So we do travel and trade shows um, literally all around the world. So every year we're in England, um, ITB in Germany, which is the largest tourism trade show in the world, and then um, Marketplace in uh, LA, which is covers the whole of North America, which is the uh, the largest tourism event in the USA for Australian product. We also travel to South uh, South America to um, countries there every second year. So we've got people on the ground who are intimate with our product so as they can deliver all the information to the agents so they're fully educated so people can make informed decisions from wherever they uh, come from. You sound like you're a bit of an airport economist yourself, Brett, getting around to all those trade shows. Yeah. Breaking your product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spend a, you spend a bit of time in the air. <laughs> Very good. Hey, do you have any you know economic headwinds that often hits you, like you know, if the Australian dollar goes up or, you know, fuel prices, is there any major thing you've ever had to deal with, you know, like a global you know, financial crisis? Does that hit tourism? How, how susceptible are you to economic Look, changes? Yeah, we are, we are actually quite susceptible to those. Um, the biggest challenge we have, if almost on a daily basis, is just where the Australian dollar sits with the yeah. US dollar. Okay. When there's a big drop in the uh, the Aussie dollar against the US, that's actually really good for tourism. Yeah. So we will see a massive amount of bookings flow in at that point. Now, they may but not be traveling for six or 12 months, but the US market will buy now while the dollar's in their favor. So that's a really good economic earner for us is actually the dollar going low, where most other industries want the dollar to go the other way. And obviously, that has a flow-on effect with the, the varying currencies around the world. Terrorism, this might sound a bit strange, but um, terrorism's actually been a major boost for us in tourism. Because you're safe. Yeah, because Australia is recognised as uh, pretty much the second safest uh, country in the world to travel to, behind New Zealand. So a lot of, uh, especially American clients, they want to do their annual holiday and they're worried about going to European countries or countries where there's unrest, even though they can literally fly there in a couple of hours. And they're going, no, we're concerned about that. So they'll do a long-haul destination and they'll fly to New Zealand and Australia and, um, and wait for uh, things to settle down where they feel comfortable to travel to those countries. So most of these things are things you can't really do much, much about. Um, you just cop the exchange rates or, or global events? That's right. Yeah, you just, you just roll with the punches. Um, at the end of the day, for our business, because we are a small group, we're not looking for a lot of people to fill the bus. So you kind of can always fill the bus for each tour fairly easily, even if there's a large change in uh, economic circumstances because there's always a sort of minimum number of people that head to Uluru, where the larger companies will sometimes um, struggle to make their baseline where they might have 50 seats on a bus and they're struggling to fill 20 of them in some of those economic challenging times. 
Now, you have a significant Indigenous culture component led by the traditional owner of Uluru, Sammy Wilson, who I had the honour of meeting. Mm. How did that all happen? Uh, myself and Sammy have known each other for a long time, ever since I went to um, out to Uluru. We've just sort of crossed paths a lot and uh, more become sort of mates in a way than um, anything else. And uh, several years ago, Sammy um, wanted to get his own product up and running and um, he approached a few other operators who really didn't have the capacity to handle what he wanted. And then uh, just by a chance meeting with him one day, he came and said to us, hey, this is what I want to do. And um, so we said, this is fantastic. This is exactly what you know the, the market's wanting. So we um, put it together and um, yeah, four years ago, we started running a tour on his homeland um, with his family and all his family members. Um, and four years, that product's been running now and it's uh, highly successful and um, is uh, generating some good, good um, economic benefits for the local community. And you employ Indigenous people in your business. Yeah, so, I mean, why do people come to Uluru? Because it's marketed and portrayed around the world as the Aboriginal centre of Australia. Um, so people around the world come to Uluru to meet an Aboriginal person or, or learn about the culture. Um, and the reality is that they don't really get that experience because there's not the opportunity for the Aboriginal people to do the work in the tourism sector. At Uluru, we pretty much have the only two Aboriginal tours as such. So there's a huge demand. There is a massive demand for international tourists who want to meet and talk and sit down and find out about Aboriginal people on a one-to-one -one basis. So the supply is certainly outstripping the demand. And it would provide economic uh, and employment opportunity uh, within, you know, traditional custom and so on. Yeah, yeah. Well, with, you know, with Sammy's case, um, Sammy Wilson, you know, it really just started off with Sammy doing the tours initially. And then he started training his um, sons who were adult sons. And then now both of them are involved. And um, now one of uh, the daughters is involved and there's um, so it's already spread that there's about six people within his sort of immediate family group that are working regularly doing the tours. So we're not burning anyone out because um, they share it. Um, so, but the, the the economic benefit is coming straight back to that family, um, and then that family's in the community. So then there's a spread from that, and then what we're also finding is we're getting a few inquiries. It's early days of other families going, okay, we can see this working really well for the Wilson family. How can we get on board or what can we do? So there's some discussions that are in the pipeline at the moment. Yeah, Sammy told me he learnt a lot from meeting international tourists from Germany and America and Europe and, and Asia and so on, but he felt like a teacher too because he'd, you know, has 60,000 years of, you know, culture to share from his land and his community. So it was quite a good exchange. Yeah, look, i I work with quite a few Indigenous people other than just Sammy, and especially down with the traditional owners in the APY lands. Um, they all see themselves as teachers, not a tour guide, because they've got so much Indigenous knowledge and so much history that's just ingrained in who they are, and they just speak it naturally. They don't have to try to be anything or put on a show. They just um, talk about who they are and what they are and and where they're going, and there is a thousand lessons just in one conversation. So sort of 
really what they're learning is tailoring that a little bit to more what the customer's interested in. And each country that comes here, be it German, Italy, America, um, English, are all after a slightly different take on what they're about. But um, I suppose at the end of the day, the, the, the core values of the tour kind of remain the same. And how do you think tourism will change now? And now there's not the climbing of the rock. Do you think this new Indigenous element with the, the knowledge uh, of so many thousands of years will bring a new aspect of tourism in Uluru and the surrounding area in the Red Centre? Absolutely. I think on a, on a personal front and also from a business front that the closure of the climb is long overdue. And there's only a certain type of client that actually does climb the rock, which is actually quite interesting. And they're not actually our client. So our client that um, picks a Sea at Outback Australia tour, be it a, just a, a public tour or be it a private charter, is picking our tour because of they want to be educated and they want to be more hands-on, touchy-feely, and they want to get to know the land and understand the whole of Central Australia and not interested in climbing the rock in the first place. So the type of customer that normally does want to climb the rock is more the type of customer that will go on a production line type tour. So moving forward from the climb closure, now you've still got the same sort of group of people that are now going to be, in a way, their hands been forced a little bit in that they will be choosing some sort of product, be it ours, be it another tour operator's product, but they're going to be going on a more structured tour other than a sort of a, a, a climb the rock at your own pace kind of thing. So I think the opportunities there for business growth um, in all the tourism sector will actually increase over the next couple of years. Now, Brett, you've done this successfully for a long time. What advice would you give to a first-time tourism operator or, or any, any business, for that matter, trying to take on a, a project as big as this? Um, I think is to be confident about your product and make sure that your product is unique because there's lots of, uh, I suppose like anything in any industry, there's there's lots of people who, you know, it's easy enough to copy something else. But, and we've had people try to do that in the past and they've failed where they've tried to copy our product because they're not see it. But the ones that do succeed are the ones that um, have something that, that's unique and their point of difference that no one else can copy. And it's just seeking that out. And if you can seek that out and be extremely confident about your product and get out there and, and sell it with your heart, not sell it from a business point of view, then the customers will flow. So it's emotional intelligence as much as business intelligence. Absolutely. And, you know, that's what we do. When we sell our product anywhere, be it domestically or internationally, we actually don't sit at a stand or talk to people where we're actually selling the product. We actually just have a conversation with them about Central Australia and all the opportunities. And we actually promote and sell other businesses as well including Ayers Rock Resort as a whole, because that's the destination and, and all the rue. But just by having a conversation with people um, and not putting the emphasis on the sale of your actual product, we actually get more sales and people book it because they've got a holistic approach and they go, great, we can book our tour to Central Australia with it, and they can provide all these different elements for us and package it all together and, and away they go. And that's exactly what happens. Brett, thanks for being on the Airport Economist. No problem. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for this edition of the Airport Economist. I hope you enjoyed listening and picked up a few useful tips along the way. 
The Airport Economist podcast series is produced by Liv Proud, audio production by Darcy Thompson, and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. The Airport Economist is recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au, download the app, or look us up on iTunes. And don't forget, there is also the Airport Economist TV series and book of the same name. You can find out more at our website, theairporteconomist.com, before you take off. Well, thanks for joining me. I look forward to our next business adventure together somewhere in the big wide world. I'm Tim Harcourt, and I'm the Airport Economist.